Before we moved to Alexandria, I would have sworn we didn't have many possessions and that many of the things... Hold on a second. And that many of the things we had could be sold in a garage sale or given away. So we did have a garage sale. Change the slide, please. And we did rid ourselves of a lot of extraneous items. Clothing, old shoes, old books that I knew I would never read. Knickknacks, musical instruments I'd stopped playing. Change the slide, please. Nail polish. <laughs> nail po I, I just have to get in a dig on the nail polish. See that? <laughs> of all the addictions you could have, I think this is like one of the, the, the least um, the, the least consequential ones, let's just say. Yeah. This isn't so bad. So, lots of stuff. We had, uh, you name it. So we gave quite a few things away, too. We gave away old wine glasses, white elephant gifts from Christmas parties past, a Johannes Brahms bobblehead doll from NPR that I got years ago, tacky dining wear, kitschy art, so on. And if you change the slide again, please. For those of you who are who are watching us right now on Facebook, I will put these online on the podcast that I have. I will put these on the, the WordPress site. If you look at the screen, you'll see that everything we sold or gave away barely made a dent in our stuff. That's my Facebook post the night of, you know, thank God for good friends. You know, I don't have that much stuff. Uh, and we'll change the slide again. And many of you know that personally after helping us move. On moving day in Hartford City, the movers said that if they had a nickel for every time they heard, I don't have much stuff, <laughs> they, they would be pretty rich because they would have two or three tons of stuff. They, they would weigh it, you know, sometimes they'd weigh it and be a lot. There's something insidious about stuff, isn't there? There's something almost, almost demonic about it. When I moved from La Crosse, Wisconsin to Hartford City, I moved from a one-bedroom apartment to a four-bedroom house. And when you move into a space that large, stuff breeds. <laughs> you know, and before I knew it, I had a house full of stuff. And it was amazing how much time and attention some of that stuff took. All the time it takes to take care of your stuff. You know, putting furniture in the right place, arranging knickknacks, all that stuff. So did we own our stuff or did our stuff own us? As we journey through Mark's gospel, we've noticed a lot of demonic possession. This doesn't sit well with our contemporary Western view of the world in which everything is presumed to have a scientifically verifiable reason behind it. Nevertheless, Mark's gospel has absolutely no regard for our contemporary sensibilities and shows us the world as the early disciples of Jesus saw it. So we can gain a foothold into Mark's world. In a previous sermon, I've likened, I've likened possession to other forces that take control of our lives like, addic like addiction. But here we have another kind of possession story, one that we can understand better, perhaps, because it is about possessions, things we own. Perhaps we understand it a little too well. It might explain why so many preachers, myself included, have tried to dodge these crystal clear words of Jesus. 
The story of the rich man starts out eerily similar to the story of the demon-possessed man in Gerasene. Both men come to Jesus, they just run up to him, they fall down before him, and they say something true about him. You know, the man at Gerasene says, uh, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Have you come to destroy us? But, in this case, so in that case, the unclean spirit knows full well who Jesus is and is therefore fearful. The rich man, though unwittingly, describes Jesus as good. He doesn't even know what he's saying. The rich man doesn't even know who Jesus is or what his situation is really like. Both men are possessed. Both men are controlled by something outside themselves. The man at Gerasene is clearly controlled by an evil spirit, but the rich man is controlled by something far more subtle, perhaps even more sinister because it hides easier. It's passive possession. It's idolatry as opposed to the Gerasene man's active possession by an unclean spirit. It's why the man at Gerasene could not assert, like the rich man, I have kept all these things since my youth. The rich man does assert this. He says, I've kept all these commands since my youth. And we can presume that he is sincere when he says that. We might be skeptical about whether or not he actually kept the commandments. And in fact, the lie is exposed later in the gospel story. But the important thing here is that he believes that he's kept them. He believes he's done it. And it is likely that he thinks he's made a good faith effort to keep them. But it isn't enough. And this man knows it. This rich man knows it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked Jesus about it, would he? The question is filled with anxiety. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Imagine asking a similar question to your parents. What must I do to be included in the will? (laughs) Lots of anxiety behind that question. But Jesus takes it seriously. So Jesus goes over the second table of the commandments which concern our relationships with our neighbors. The man says he's kept them. Then something remarkable happens. Jesus looks at him and loves him. Mark uses an intensified version of the Greek verb to see, which may mean to gaze or to look intently, carefully, or deeply. Jesus looks deeply into the soul of this man, and he sees that which possesses him. He sees that which keeps him from fulfilling the commandments, and he sees that in which this man trusts. He sees this man's God. And he still loves him, deeply loves him. It's a pastoral moment, and it's a moment for truth-telling, not in the sense of, I'm going to tell you what, how it is, and if your feelings are hurt, too bad. No, that's not this kind of moment. It's a truth-telling moment. It's something that this man needs to see. But it is done in a, in, a, in a pastoral way. It's intended to be that way. You lack one thing, Jesus says. Go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Whew. 
Jesus' words, once again, are shocking and offensive because they target that which the man holds so dear. Those things he trusts in rather than God. And Jesus does the same with us. Passive possession, idolatry, is usually possession by something good in and of itself, unlike all the demonic possession we see in the Bible. Nevertheless, these good things, which you can just name all the good things that can take hold of our lives, family, country, our work, all these things and many others that you can think of can take control of our lives. They can keep us from following Jesus. They can keep us from really living our lives now in the way that our Creator intended. They can keep us from unity with Christ. Perhaps this kind of life, this kind of unity with Christ is what Jesus is talking about when he takes the opportunity for a teaching moment, saying how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And did you notice how shocked the disciples were by that? How hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's shocking to them. That's shocking because it was widely regarded in the ancient world, and still is in many places, that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. That the, these wealth, that the wealthy people were mo- clearly the most blessed because of all their things, everything they had. Outward sign of blessing. So they're saying, if he can't get in, and he's obviously the best, what hope is there for the rest of us? It's the other way around than we usually think. If they can't enter the kingdom, who can? So now we finally get to the gospel, to the good news. All this tension that has built up and hopefully, you know, it makes us squirm. This gospel which does not excuse, but transforms. Jesus says for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. It is possible even then for God to transform that man's heart so that he can have union with Christ, putting his trust in the only one worthy of it. It is possible for God to transform us, and God does transform us, as addicted to and possessed by the things that we seem to endlessly accumulate. And it is possible for us through the Spirit to trust in the one who guarantees our inheritance in God's kingdom, both now and in the age to come. Poor Peter. Poor Peter, who thinks he has to remind Jesus, well, look, we've already left everything and we've followed you. There's something in it for us, right? Jesus reminds Peter that indeed those who follow him find a community, a family, so much greater than they could have imagined. This has nothing to do, by the way, with the seed money that the prosperity preachers hawk on television, which is a way to manipulate God into doing what we want. This has everything to do with the nature of the church. The church is a community of transformed persons. One in Christ, who love each other as Christ loves them. This is a community of people called to resiliency, to character in Christ, who makes them citizens of his kingdom by grace alone, transforming their hearts. 
This is a community of people who not only receive the good news that they have been welcomed into the kingdom of God, but who live it out in their lives. Possessions may possess us, but only one, only one person has a rightful claim on us. Only one God has a rightful claim. And Christ's ownership of us sets us free from everything that keeps us from the love of God and from each other. We are far, far more than what we have or what we can accumulate. Transformed in the spirit and living in the gospel, let's live lives worthy of that truth. Thanks be to God.